Amen. If you have your Bible, open up to the second letter to Timothy. We are going to continue in our series called Finishing Well, and it's one of my favorite books. Well, several years ago, and I think again in 2021, uh, Gallup, the Gallup organization, did a survey of a number of Americans to determine the level of trust that they held for various vocations based on perceived honesty and ethical integrity. Now, the poll ended up evaluating, I think, 20 different vocations and consistently pulling among the top as the most trusted authorities were nurses, doctors, and high school teachers, of all things. And perhaps unsurprisingly, the least trusted on the list were members of Congress, just a few percentage points below car salesmen. And somewhere in the middle of the survey, tucked in between the average journalist and the funeral director, were pastors or clergy. And while this was the highest that journalists had actually scored since, I think, 1977, for pastors, it was actually an all-time low. Pastors aren't trusted very much. And there are probably all kinds of reasons behind this fall from Gallup Grace, from adulterous celebrity pastors to pedophile priests to spiritual abusers. The clergy haven't done well in the press for many years. And even if we can agree on what makes a bad pastor, there seems to be some disagreement or confusion as to what exactly makes a good pastor. In chapter 3 of his first letter to Timothy, so this is the second letter we're studying, but in the first letter, in chapter 3, Paul wrote about the qualifications, what qualified a man to be a pastor or an elder. And more than anything, if you read it, you'll see that Paul expected a pastor to be a man of character. That was most important. Nearly every qualification he lists has to do with a man's character, except that he should be able to teach and he should manage his own home well. Now today, after 15 years, I've learned that there's a lot of expectations of pastors. He's expected to be an excellent communicator, a strong leader, a wise counselor, a community leader, a political activist, a fundraiser, a career coach, a social worker, an events coordinator, a mediator, an IT manager, a facilities manager, a graphic designer, a social media expert, a marketing whiz, to be financially savvy, well-read, and of course, relevant. Now, the interesting thing to think about is the emphasis that people are putting today on what qualifies or makes a good pastor seems to be connected with whether or not their ministry grows numerically, because all those things are largely about growing something. And it really seems like it's become unimportant or less important whether that same person possesses godly character or biblical conviction. Author Eugene Peterson, I think, was correct when he wrote, the vocation of pastors has been replaced by the strategies of religious entrepreneurs with business plans. 
Now, for better or worse, in this COVID context that we find ourselves coming out of, the pandemic has revealed that pastors vary greatly from church to church, if you didn't know that. Some pastors appear to really love the people, while others seem to really love the platform. Some pastors seem to love to pray privately, while others seem to love to prophesy publicly. Some pastors appear to love the Bible supremely, while others seem to love the Constitution just a little bit more. Some seem to love avoiding unnecessary conflict, and others seem to love creating controversy. I'm also obviously generalizing, but as we transition into a new season as a church with a new lead pastor, we find ourselves asking an important question, what makes a good pastor? That's a good question. The elders have asked for and received all kinds of feedback, and most of it's been helpful, some of it's been unhelpful, and some of it has been downright strange, honestly, but God be praised for all of it. And here in 2 Timothy, beginning in verse 14, we see that Paul, as he's anticipating his departure, anticipating his future martyrdom, he is giving some of his last words, I would argue some of his best words, to his best friend. And in this case, he's telling Timothy what he should do and strive to be as a pastor. And in many ways, warning him about what not to be as a pastor. And although you might not be a pastor, I would argue that the words and the instruction, the advice can apply to parents, to leaders, to ministers, even just to Christians. But in context, here's what Paul is writing to this young pastor. I want to begin in verse 15. I'll come back to 14. And it says this to Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal, the Lord knows who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So Paul's going to use three different image to, images to describe a good pastor. He uses the image of a worker and a vessel of honor in a house and a servant of the Lord. Paul charges Timothy, to begin with, to be a particular kind of worker as a pastor. You may not know this, but it's been said that a lot of pastors are susceptible to sloth or laziness. I'm not trying to call our pastors out, but I do know many who realize that the role of a pastor can easily be taken advantage of by those who don't really want to work a real job. There's not a ton of accountability for how they spend their time. And so it's easy and tempting to waste time and to not very, work very hard. 
I think Paul uses this image deliberately because, to begin with, pastors are expected to work hard. Now, there are a lot of things that a pastor can work or give their time to, but Paul's going to emphasize one particular thing that he should work hardest at. According to Acts chapter 6, this is when they first begin to kind of not install, but appoint men like deacons to serve the church. And they do this so that the elders or the pastors can commit themselves to the most important thing, which is really the ministry of the Word. That's what the role is primarily described as. And while it's a blessing to have a multi-talented leader or pastor who can do lots of things, their number one job is to work hard at handling the word of truth rightly. Not perfectly, but rightly. Now, working to handle the word rightly does not mean working to become a really clever communicator or gifted orator. Truth be told, that helps. It helps if someone can communicate clearly, but I will suggest one thing. It's possible that sometimes really creative or really comedic words of men sometimes distract from the truth of the Word of God. Sometimes when you leave a sermon or listen to teaching, you remember the jokes and the personal stories more than you remember the Scripture and the truth. That's a problem. The Word of God is supposed to be what is primary, not the gifted ability to communicate of the one speaking. Perhaps this is why Paul wrote in his second letter to the Corinthians these words as people compared him to other pastors. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He speaks the plain, simple, open truth of God without being clever or cunning, without tampering it. And that's what good pastors are supposed to do. They're supposed to live the Word and pray the Word and counsel the Word and share the Word and plainly and boldly preach the Word of truth. Now, that said, just because a preacher quotes a Bible verse after their Sunday morning TED Talk doesn't mean they're good pastors. Okay? I'm not naming names. Paul identifies, though, that there are two kinds of workmen who work with the Word. There are those who are approved by God and those who are not. There are those who are not ashamed before God and those who should or will be. Both work with the Word. And their shame or lack thereof is not based on the success of the ministry they lead or the scope of their influence, but whether or not they rightly handle the Word of truth. Now, this phrase, rightly handling, comes from the world of agriculture. 
and actually carries the meaning of dividing or cutting a clear or a straight path or road across the countryside. A clear path, obviously, provides a clear direction so that a traveler can walk directly to where they're supposed to go. This is what a good workman does. He divides the Word of God rightly, cuts the Word of God rightly. He is true to Scripture. He doesn't get creative with it. He doesn't add to it. He doesn't twist it. He doesn't cherry-pick it. He teaches it entirely and plainly and accurately so as to help others walk the path of faith straight. As the psalmist wrote, the word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The word, not the wisdom of men. Now, the other kind of workman doesn't cut a straight line of truth. Paul describes him as swerving from the truth. And the word for swerve actually comes from archery. And it carries the idea of missing the mark. Even if they claim to be Christian, even if they quote Bible verses, their teaching is dangerously off target. Though it sounds spiritual. Instead of aiming for something godly and hitting the bullseye of orthodox truth, more likely they aim for what is worldly and end up hitting something heretical that tickles the ears. Now Paul names two men, which is important to do sometimes. I will not do it this morning. But he does name names, and it's not the only time he does it in Scripture. And he's giving examples like, let me show you what a bad workman looks like. These same men were actually mentioned in the first letter to Timothy. And in that letter, these were guys who Timothy or Paul described as badly wanting to be teachers and shouldn't be. And they ended up perverting the gospel, and as Paul described, they made a shipwreck of their faith, and I'm handing it over to Satan. These guys were well-known. And years after sending the first letter, they're still in the church. Here, Hymenaeus and Philetus are described as falsely teaching that the resurrection has already happened. He's not speaking of necessarily the resurrection of Jesus, but he is kind of, in that he spiritualized Jesus' resurrection and he is actually denying a future bodily resurrection of people. And this sounds what will be described as Gnostic. And if you read any sort of history of the early church, you will see Gnosticism was a very dangerous heresy that threatened the early church. Gnosticism comes from this Greek word gnosis, which means to know. And that's because the Gnostics had a unique characteristic. They had all kinds of teachings, some related to the resurrection and the spiritual and the flesh and how they were these separate things. But mainly they taught that they possessed a secret knowledge. Special revelation, call it. 
And it was apart from the Bible, beyond the Bible. And you acquired it by kind of having some higher level of existence. You were special. And you knew things that could understand things that the Lord was saying more than others. So think of it this way. Think hyper-spiritual and woefully unbiblical. Hyper-spiritual, woefully unbiblical. And though these men were well-known, and in Ephesus they were likely teachers of the Bible, and even though they probably sound very spiritual, it's possible they actually have very successful ministries. Paul says this, the Lord knows who are his. Implying that these guys are not. Which is a pretty bold and direct statement. It reminds me of one of the I think, most frightening passages in Scripture that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7. And he was teaching about the day of judgment and the different ministers that will come before him. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 says this, Jesus speaking, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, the last day, the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. There's emotion in that. There's certainty in that. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we preach sermons in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do many mighty works in your name? They had successful ministries. They actually cast out demons. They did mighty works. They did it in the name of Jesus. And yet Jesus says to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's frightening. And so Timothy is told, look, avoid these kinds of workmen that have irreverent blathering about all kinds of spiritual sounding things. They probably draw a crowd, but they destroy the faith of many. Paul says that this kind of useless talk or useless posting, it just fosters ungodliness. And what does he say? It spreads like gangrene, which I started reading about gangrene. It's pretty gross and horrible. But think about this. He says this kind of teaching this kind of blathering about all kinds of spiritual things that have nothing to do with the Bible, really, even if they quote the Bible, he says it spreads like a virus. Now think about this. Ironically, it seems like there are many pastors and people today who speak in such a way to actually try and go viral. But rarely is it actually about biblical truth. So Paul simply says, avoid these people. Have nothing to do with this kind of pastor or person 
And find someone like this. Find someone who elevates God's name, God's work, and God's words over their own. That's what you should find. That's a good workman and a good pastor. Well, he continues in verses 20 to 23, and he talks about good and bad pastors in the context of vessels in a house. And he says this, Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but there are also wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. The great house that Paul refers to is likely the house of God. The church, the visible gathering that professes to believe in Jesus. Emphasis on professes. But the church, these two false teachers were in the church. And unsurprisingly, Paul says that the household of God contains good and bad vessels, honorable and dishonorable, gold and clay. Elsewhere in Scripture, he refers to ministry, at least God refers and describes Paul as an instrument, and Paul refers to himself as a vessel. It's the same word that is used here. So he's not just merely referring to members of the church, that there are those who believe and those who do not. He's actually speaking about good and bad teachers in the church. In the church. The same thing Paul had warned the church of in Acts 20, when he left, he said, look, wolves are going to come from within. Did you know, I had to look this up, there are more than 300,000 churches in America. I don't know if that number's accurate, but that means over 300,000 pulpits. Pulpits in the visible church. But I would argue this, that even if, even if there are pastors holding positions of honor, which a pulpit is, they are not all vessels of gold and silver made for honorable use. Now it's hard, if not impossible, for us to discern the differences between these two vessels, Arguably, I would say some of the vessels that we perceive as gold, God sees as clay. And some that we see as clay, God probably perceives as gold. Some of the smallest insignificant ministries led by godly pastors who will never ever be known on the internet or elsewhere, God considers incredibly faithful. And there are many whose names we all know with gigantic ministries, whom Jesus will say, I never knew you. And again, it's hard for us to tell. Only God can truly see the heart of any person. But I think we can still hear the words, and we can still see the life. Now, this word vessel describes a utensil or tool that is used for a particular purpose and the primary and honorable purpose 
that teachers in the church are to fulfill is to testify to the word of truth. In Colossians 1, Paul calls the word of truth the gospel. So, simply stated, good pastors preach the gospel. It's crazy that we even have to say that. But sometimes I wonder how many pastors even know the gospel. Now, in preaching the gospel, a good pastor is going to preach about sin. He's going to talk about sin. Otherwise, why are you talking about redemption? You're going to be talking about repentance. You're going to be preaching about Jesus alone as the Savior of the world. There is only one name given under heaven through which men might be saved, and his name is Jesus. That's what they're going to be preaching. They're not going to be preaching prosperity. They're not going to be preaching positive thinking. They're not going to be preaching politics. They're not going to be preaching whatever is popular culture. They're going to preach something very old and very true. Good pastors are going to proclaim nothing and no one other than Jesus as the Savior of sinners. Yesterday, today, and forever. So a good pastor is totally devoted to honorable use when he is totally devoted to giving God total honor for everything. Much like what distinguishes, what distinguishes good and bad workmen, the honorable tool, if you will, points people away from the self and to Christ. And the dishonorable draws people to the self in place of Christ. And there's a world of difference between those two. A pastor who does not preach the gospel may be useful to the world, but hear this, he is useless to the Lord. Useless. For any man who doesn't preach the gospel is powerless. They're preaching nothing that has power. Now, Paul seems to indicate that someone can change, that anyone can change, that there can be a shift from dishonorable to honorable use if he cleanses himself, if a vessel is cleaned. You go, what does it mean to be clean or to stay clean? Like, great question. Paul tells us in verse 22, he says to Timothy, having told them about these vessels, he says, look, so... Flee, Timothy, you flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from pure heart. Because there are many who call upon the Lord from a different kind of heart. To be clean is simply this. To be continually repentant. Repentance is not just one action that happens when Jesus saved you. Repentance is something that happens every day over a lifetime. The inner life needs to match the outer life. It is a heart repentance. Paul describes this disposition as one who is devoted to fleeing and pursuing. That's repentance. Turning away from and turning toward, running away from and running toward. 
This is similar, echoes the words of Jeremiah the prophet when God told him simply this in Jeremiah chapter 2. I believe it's verse 13, that my people have committed two sins, two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. So there's a fountain, a living water that is from the Lord, that gives life and sustains and grows and protects, and we should be drinking of it deeply, says they forsook that. But not only that, he says, they hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What does it mean to flee and pursue? But good pastors know it's not enough to simply stop drinking toilet water. Just stop sitting. Everything will be fine. You can stay alive in muddy water and toilet water for some time. It'll make you sick. What you need to do is stop drinking that and start drinking deeply of the fountain of life. Good pastors run away and call others to run away from youthful unrighteousness and run after righteousness. They don't do it perfectly, but they do it faithfully. Good pastors run away from believing any bad thing about God. And they run toward trusting Him, sometimes despite what they see. Good pastors turn away from division and they run after peace and unity And they run away from religious piety and toward gospel-centered confession. And again, I wish this went without saying, but I'll say it. A good pastor can't preach the gospel unless he actually believes the gospel. And you can tell. You can tell when a man truly believes the gospel. Let me show you how. You see, a good pastor doesn't act like a Pharisee. And what's a Pharisee? Well, Jesus described them this way. Vessels that were clean on the outside and rotten inside. They were good pretenders, quoted their Bible verses, seemed to be righteous, and yet were dead as tombs, dirty on the inside. I would ironically suggest that a good pastor is one who knows he's bad. A good person, ironically, is one who knows they're bad. They're characterized, pastors in particular, but I would say the same for parents or any person. They're characterized by a kind of public repentance. And I don't mean like occasionally repenting of some sin that you did. I'm talking about a disposition of being poor in spirit. I'm talking about a disposition where you understand, you know what, I'm humble enough to confess my sins, even publicly at times, because I am so confident that God is faithful to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. You know when a pastor believes the gospel. There's a level of vulnerability that I think a good pastor should carry, and I pray that I've done that at least most of the time, probably not all of it, to show you that, like, I'm not strong, I'm weak. That I'm a sinner saved by grace. That I don't 
have all the answers, but I know the one who does. You see, in his first letter to Timothy, he told him something that not enough pastors, I think, really take seriously. After telling him to like pursue godliness and practice these things, he says, and let everyone see your progress. That's a level of vulnerability that pastors aren't comfortable with. People aren't comfortable with. Let me see when you step in a hole and make a mistake. It's not that you made a mistake. It's what do you do next? Or about when you succeed. What do you do next? I'm pretty awesome, aren't I? Or is it praise Jesus that he could use a sinner like me to do anything? There's a gospel disposition that every person and pastor should have. And that demonstrates they're actually, okay, useful for the master. Find a pastor who preaches the gospel because he believes the gospel, which is hard to do. Lastly, and perhaps most relevant for our context, Paul characterizes a good pastor as one who doesn't quarrel or engage in foolish controversies. Now, because I'm saying he characterizes pastors, someone's like, okay, yeah, pastors. Let's just throw in people in there and see how it lands with you. This theme is actually quite prevalent throughout the letter. If you go through the verses... In chapter 2, verse 14, the first verse I didn't read yet, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good and only ruins the hearers. Verse 16, avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Verse 24, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been captured by him to do his will. It's a very clear pattern in there. Something that we all need to hear. Well, maybe not you. I just said you randomly. It's like, well, maybe not me, but well, all of us. His teaching is plain. The Lord's servant. Are you that? But especially pastors. Shouldn't be quarrelsome. Shouldn't be pugnacious. Shouldn't be picking fights. Now, in the midst of COVID, this is just my perspective. I've watched many pastors and people become embroiled in controversy and quarrels. And so you have to ask, is Paul prohibiting all controversy? I want to argue no. As evidenced by Paul's own life, there is a time and a place to fight the good fight of faith in a very tangible way. And that is, honestly, primarily, when the gospel's at stake. Christians must stand when the gospel's at stake, regardless of cost. 
whether it be your reputation, your lifestyle, or even your life. What is forbidden, however, are controversies or quarrels that are, if you look at the language, literally stupid and senseless. And because he said this so frequently, I think it's fair to assume that most quarrels and controversies are stupid and senseless. Most qualify for what Paul is talking about. These are the kinds of arguments that honestly go beyond Scripture. These are the kinds of arguments that are rooted in speculation and personal interpretation or agenda. These are the kinds of arguments that are divisive and they only breed quarrels. These are the kinds of arguments that damage the reputation of Christ, divide the church, and shipwreck faith. Now, average Christians, I just mean like normal, non-pastor Christian, they can probably pick a lot of fights and quarrels without much real consequence. Not saying they should, but they can. But pastors, parents, leaders, ministers, there's great consequence. Which is why good pastors choose their battles very wisely and very carefully. I'm not suggesting there's never a battle to fight. But they don't fight unnecessarily because they know the cost. And they also know that this, not everything can be a gospel issue. And just because something feels unwrong or feels even unjust doesn't mean you have the right to baptize your anger or your angry activism. Paul says that a good pastor, a good workman, an honorable vessel, a servant of the Lord, is committed to actually what I'll call positive care most of the time and negative care some of the time. To primarily kindness and occasionally correction. You think about your interactions and your engagement with the world, engagement with family and friends, is it largely characterized by kindness and correction? Or correction and a little kindness. Paul makes it clear what it should be characterized by. Paul says that good pastors, Timothy, be committed to being kind to everyone without qualification. And I know we've got a list in our mind, like, you know how hard it is to be kind to this kind of person or this particular person? Everyone's got their list. Paul says, be kind to everyone. He says, patiently endure evil. I'm telling you, in this last season, there has been more divisions over race and politics and viruses and masks than I've ever seen in my generation and it has created incredible opportunity to be either kind or cruel to many. There's been more than one occasion during this pandemic 
to patiently endure evil or impatiently denounce those you think are evil. Now, truth be told, a pastor may actually grow crowds, sell books, and otherwise make fans with bold statements, weird videos, or brash billboards by villainizing their opponents. But this is not the way of Christ's servant. A recent article in Gospel Coalition, which everyone should read, recalled an historic exchange between two kinds of pastors. One was named T.T. Shields, and the other was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. These two pastors shared a lot. They shared theological conviction. They are both Reformed, both obviously pastors. But T.T. Shields was a very vigorous and public denouncer of all kinds of apostasy in the church and in the world. Now, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he appreciated T.T. Shields. He didn't have animosity against him. But he did believe that the Baptist pastor was sometimes a little too controversial, too denunciatory, and a little too severe. So they had a conversation about this, and Shields noted that, well, every time that I engage in controversy, or what he often called dogfights, that sales of the gospel newspaper went up. There was a positive response. Crowds grew. To which Lloyd-Jones responded this way. Well, I've always observed that there's, where there's a dogfight, or if there's a dogfight, a crowd gathers. I'm not all surprised because people like that sort of thing. So then T.T. Shield said, all right. And so he appealed to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' previous vocation, which he was a medical doctor before he was a pastor. Smart dude. And so he said, well, look, look. What if the world or your opponent is like someone with cancer? It will be unloving not to perform surgery on them and to call them to, to healing by cutting it out. If they don't, they'll die. To which... The doctor responded this way. What I say to that is this. I'm a physician, but there's a such thing as being, or such thing as a surgical mentality or of becoming what is described as knife happy. I agree there are some cases where you have got to operate, but the danger of the surgeon is to operate immediately. He thinks in terms of operating, never have an operation without having a second opinion from a physician. So, what am I trying to say? Without question, there is a time to correct opponents. And to do so, sometimes boldly. But you don't want a knife-happy pastor. And you don't want to be a knife-happy person. The Lord's servants are not knife-happy. 
The purpose of correction is to win people, not condemn them. And I honestly want to ask sometimes those who are denouncers like T.T. Shields, those who feel they should be bold and brash and you know, denounce everything they can, how many people have you actually won with your verbal brutality, I'll call it? Sadly, I've watched many pastors describe gentle Christians as just passive Christians. And even most recently, I see them wielding a famous C.S. Lewis quote that talks about men without chests. They use the quote referring to men without chests, men who are weak, in order to criticize less vocal pastors. Apparently, they believe insulting Manhood is the way to win over the gentler ones who they disagree with. Well, according to Paul, good pastors follow the example of Christ. Christians follow the example of Christ. And that is, he spoke the truth in love. He had his moments of rebuke, don't get me wrong. He had his moments of strong language. But he's largely characterized by gentleness. He unapologetically preached the word of God, and yet he loved his enemies. Jesus didn't endeavor to have a loud and wrathful ministry. On the contrary, he had a gentle and truthful one, and it impacted the world. Good pastors seek the same, and here's why. Because they understand that repentance, changing someone's not just mind but their heart, is not in their power to achieve. It's a gift of the Lord. The power for salvation is in the proclamation of the gospel. Faith comes from hearing and that by the word of God. And so we don't beat people senseless with words. We actually pray as Paul says, that they'll come to their senses and escape the trap that they're in. Why do we do this? And not just pound on them. Simply this. Because we have more faith in God than we do in ourselves and more fear of God than we do of the world. What's a good pastor? Well, I'll close with what Eugene Peterson said, because it's pretty simple. The most important thing a pastor does is stand in a pulpit every Sunday and say this, let us worship God. They point to God. If that ceases to be the primary thing I do in terms of my energy, my imagination, the way I structure my life, then I no longer function as a pastor. When you leave this place when you gather with us and you hear the word and you engage with people, my prayer is that you think less about the words of a man and more about the work and the words in the name of God. Don't put your faith in any one person or any one thing, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. That is where the power and the hope and the joy is found. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness to us. And we praise you for the gift of leaders and pastors and parents and all those shepherds in our life, Lord. But we recognize that there are good and bad ones, those that you approve and those that you do not, those that are faithful and those that are unfaithful, those who need not be ashamed and those who will be when they stand before you. Lord, we pray that you will help us to be the good pastors that you have made us to be, the good shepherds you have made us to be. And recognizing that the primary way to do that, Lord, is to actually believe the gospel before we say anything. To understand our own brokenness and our own need and our own hurt. And be able, Lord, to confess our sins without shame, knowing that you are faithful to cleanse us and forgive us. Lord, help us to be faithful workmen. Help us to fulfill the callings on our lives that you have placed. Help us to be servants, Lord, that are not quarrelsome, not looking for a controversy, that know the truth enough to be able to speak correction, but have the self-control to speak it with gentleness. Help us all to be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to become angry, that we might honor you. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.